Hi, this is Josh Crane. I'm the lead pastor at Inland Hills Church in Chino, California, and you're listening to From the Heart with Ed Hart. So our guest today on From the Heart is a new and good friend of ours, Josh Crane, as you've heard, is the lead pastor for the church that my wife, Lorianne, and I, and I have a special guest host with me here today as well, Lorianne, sitting in with me. Very excited about this. Um, we met Josh in about September of 2019 when he came on board to be our new lead pastor at Inland Hills Church, just about the same time I started recording podcasts. And I knew at some point I was excited to get Josh in to tell a little bit about his story. He has a very unique background, not just a pastor, but a lot of experience in the business world. He's a great leader, fantastic speaker, has a wealth of knowledge on not only scripture, but just leadership books and people in general. And I've just been really impressed to this point with what I've been able to learn from Josh. Uh, he's very engaging, has, has just tremendous passion. You'll hear him on stage sometimes uh, quote poetry. Sometimes he'll quote, as I mentioned, great leaders and great books. He is known to sing from time to time. And even <laughs> recently performed as Mr. Rogers on our stage. And maybe we'll get into that today. Maybe we won't. Um, he just brings the, any topic he talks about to life, and I really look forward to hearing him. And I know our guests today on From the Heart will, will really enjoy hearing you as well, Josh. Josh and his wife, Emily, are from Texas originally, uh, married in 2003. They've moved around a little bit from Texas up to Missouri, over to uh, Pennsylvania, now out here to California, finally finding the warm weather. I'm sure we'll talk about that too. They also have an they have two sons, one of whom is autistic, and we, Lorianne and I have two autistic grandsons, and I'd like to touch on that a little bit today if we could as well, um, how you educate and just your, your experiences as young parents raising an autistic son. Um, we've attended Inland Hills Church since 2015. Uh, 2018, we, we lost our dear friend and pastor to suicide, and I know there's a lot that... Uh, has come with you coming in as the new pastor, taking over a really grief-stricken community. So with that, uh, Josh, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's good to have you. Thanks so much, Ed. I'm really excited to, to join you today. So what's been, I guess, I'll just start kind of light and fun. What's been the best thing so far for you about living here in California? You've been here now six, seven, eight months, something to that effect. What, what to, other than probably In-N-Out Burger, you know, what are the <laughs> best things about being here? Yeah, I mean, before the last couple of weeks, because obviously we're, we're having this conversation right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so for the last several weeks, I would have said that we've, we've enjoyed um, all the people we've gotten to hang out with and meet. Now we're socially isolated from those people. Uh, we've enjoyed all the, the warm weather, the hiking trails. My family and I love outdoor stuff. Uh, most of those trails are shut down right now and the beaches are off limits. So, uh, but we've, but we've, the culture here has been great for us. I think that I felt a little like a fish out of water for, for a decent chunk of, of my life. What I love about Southern California is that it's both uh, fast paced and also casual. And that combination has been a good fit for who we are as a family. So we're, we're in a hurry to get somewhere, but also, you know, not too uptight about it, which is, which is nice. Have you been adapting you and Emily and the boys so far with obviously new schools for the or new school anyway, for your yeah. oldest son and just, Emily adapting to, she's a nurse, as we talked about a little she bit. She is, yeah. Um, how's, how's that ad adaptation going for you as you've, have you been here a few months now? You know, I have always told, because I've got numbers of pastors and leaders in my network. And, and when I've been asked about moving in the past, I've always just kind of said to people that, you know, when, when you make a big move, like hundreds of miles with your whole family, it's going to be harder than you think it's going to be and in ways that you can't anticipate. Like you'll just have to discover that when you get there. There's a few things, you know, I mean, losing relationships with close friends who are, you know, li living geographically close to you in proximity is always a challenge, but there's just lots of ways it'll be hard that you, you don't see coming. This for us has almost completely broken both of those rules though. It was easier than we thought it would be. And uh, in ways that we didn't expect it to be. Um, so that's, it's, it's gone really well for us. My, my kids are thriving in their schools. Uh, my youngest is in preschool, my oldest is in first grade. 
uh, Emily is taking on a larger leadership role at her hospital than she's been able to just because of the age of our kids the last several years. And that's exciting for her. And while entering into Inland Hills as a church community has certainly had lots of challenges because of where the community was, we found the relationships to be invigorating, the, the people to be excited about, you know, the mission of the church and moving forward. And, um, and we can overcome all kinds of obstacles if we can stack hands on a shared mission. So I, it's, it's been really great, man. I appreciate you asking. Have there been things that have surprised you <clears throat> since you've been here that maybe you're just like, wow, I had no idea whether it's in the church or the community or, or what have you, that just maybe you just have caught you off guard a little bit? Uh, that's a good question. I think that I wouldn't say nothing, I wouldn't say, but, but not much. And I think the biggest reason for that is because of how much research we did before we came, uh, conversations that we have with the search team at the church. I think we had a pretty good idea of where the church sat and what some of the challenges would be in the coming seasons. Um, obviously, I found out more details about that when I got here, which led us to make you know particular decisions. But that hasn't that hasn't been too too shocking. Um, I think that we've been pleasantly surprised at how good of a cultural fit it's been. You know, to kind of go back to something I said earlier, we had visited California enough, Southern California, that we thought it would be, but you just never know until yeah. you actually show up and you live somewhere. So I think it's been a little bit surprising how easy a fit that's been for us. Yeah, so it's like that's a positive surprise, which is the best but kind. Those are the negative best surprises kind. are terrible. Yeah, we haven't had a ton of positive surprises lately, so it's nice to have no. some positive. <laughs> you made a mention before we went on that you're not paying too much attention to the news, at least in real time, and I think that's pretty wise because I'm sure your life is full of uh, dealing with a lot of people who are trying to cope with the news. I'm sure that uh, you've got probably a fair share of individuals around you who are are babbling. I mean, we've been, well, through, yeah. we went through this grief as we alluded to, and we'll get back into a little bit later on, but it's a whole new kind of grief and, and loss that we're dealing with now. What, uh, and I was going to save this question for the end, but since we're here now, what, uh, what advice are you finding that you're having to give the most as you're talking to people? So, well, yeah, a few pieces. I'll talk about the news first, actually. So it's not that I don't want to be informed. I do. And I think most people do want to be informed. If you just keep, you know, Fox or CNN or MSNBC on all day, though, you're, you're going to hear a lot of the same, you know, uh, bad news over and over and over again. You really can catch up on just about everything you need to know in 10 minutes in the morning or 10 minutes in the evening or both. And then you're not just living in it the whole time. Sure. I actually prefer to, to do it um, about an hour after I wake up and about an hour before I go to bed. I don't want it to be the very first thing I'm jumping into yeah. in the morning. And I don't want it to be the very last thing I'm hitting before I'm, I'm going to sleep. It's not a great way to have good dreams. Sure. Um, but, but, I do want to be, but I also don't want to be ignorant of what's, what's happening because I think that for any leader to be helpful to their employees to be helpful to the you know their customers or their congregants whatever you know sector they happen to be leading in you need to be aware of what's happening in the world so that you can empathize with what's happening in people's lives obviously there's a ton uh, of of fallout from this covid-19 um, epidemic that's that is impacting people's real day-to-day -day lives there will be people losing jobs people losing loved ones um, or, or people getting sick. And so we need to be able to, to sit with them in that. It's a huge part, I think, of the, the call of Jesus is to be able to do that with each other. Uh, so that's important, but just don't, don't sit in the mire all the time where it's difficult to be helpful to others. Sure. And two of the significant changes that have come in your life that I've been able to witness, number one, obviously, like everyone, we're now church online, which we've talked internally yeah. here in our home and also just amongst our circle within the church about how cool it was that you even announced a few weeks before any of this was on anybody's radar that you were positioning. We saw the platform being built in the back of the, of the main building there that you were going to be switching to, or eventually coming to the point where we could broadcast the sermons live. I right. guess little did you know, or maybe you did, maybe you have a direct line that I don't have. Maybe you have a direct line that I don't have. I don't know if you have that direct line. <laughs> I, would, I would have let you know if I'd have had that yeah. direct line I would have said something yeah you, you, wouldn't have, uh, you would have been just selling stock like others sometimes right <laughs> true right right <laughs> how has the impact of that change I know that uh, I, I like to talk to you a little bit about what the day in the life is for you pre-epidemic or pandemic and now as far as your preparation for the week and just kind of what it looks like uh, maybe pre and now and then also another shift that, that I've noticed is that you're doing these online, you know, 15 or 30 minute little mini sermons, if you will, at night that I know has a really great audience, not just from Midland Hills, 
but really from all over the country. What sparked that is, I guess, question number two. And then just walk us through a little bit about the day in the life, maybe before and now. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I, I'm pretty, I prefer as much as possible to, to try to, you know, time block things in advance and to um, have some order to the week so that I'm not just flying in. Other, otherwise, the tyranny, the urgent just ends up dictating every minute of your day. So um, that was a lot easier to do, I would say, pre, you know, Mondays were set aside for certain things. Tuesdays were set aside for uh for sermon preparation specifically, Wednesdays, you know, I would I would spend meeting with creative arts teams in the morning, and I've had a number of staff uh, meetings in the afternoon. Yeah, there's so there's just a regular, you know, without going into boring amounts of detail, there's a regular rhythm and routine to the week. We had rather regular rhythms and routines about how far out we were planning sermon series, or you know, community outreaches, or you know, prayer prayer team launches, or any, any number of things that we're, we were starting to get into a rhythm as a staff, you know, it's taken a few months to get us there and, and we still had more work to do, but we were starting to get into a rhythm as a staff of what a week looked like and how that could get us prepped out far in advance. Well then, you know, we met March 8th <laughs> as wow. a church on that Sunday. And by that Wednesday, everything I was reading was pointing to the fact that within a couple weeks, we were going to have some kind of probably shelter in place order. And I remember talking to staff about it that Wednesday and just saying that I think this coming Sunday is going to be the last one we're able to meet. And at that point, it wasn't really on most of my staff's radar or, or any other pastors I was talking to. They're like, you know, are you sure? Like, I don't yeah. think. And I said, no. And I remember saying this because this ended up being so wrong. I said, I mean, this Sunday's a slam dunk. We'll definitely be able to do <laughs> this Sunday. Famous but I think the next one after that, yeah, I feel less sure about. Well, that was the very, like, that was the conversation with that morning. That eve, by that evening, Rudy Gobert, uh, NBA basketball player, had been diagnosed with COVID and the whole NBA season got canceled by yeah. like nine o'clock that night. And that was when I, I was standing next to one of my staff members in the lobby when we found out because we were there for the students' night. And I just said, I, I think we're done. Like, I don't yeah. think we're making it to Sunday. So the next day was all about, you know, hey, let's get a, as far ahead of this as we possibly can uh, with online platforms. And, and how can we move everything that we do to care for the community, to connect with each other, to, to you know, get our message out to online. And so we just blitzed it from then till Sunday. Uh, felt pretty good about that first Sunday, but we knew we had a ton of work to really get everything spinning and up and running by the next week. I immediately started reaching out to some other local pastors as well. And some of them reached out to me and we got together and actually, you know, sat and talked through, you know, what does it look like uh, to, to get e-church up? What does it look like for your groups? What does it look like for your internal communication, your external communication, staff care during this time, all that. So we were all swapping notes and ideas and that was, that was a, a great thing. Nowadays, I mean, um, we're trying to get back into a regular rhythm that just looks different, right? And all of us have, you know, many of us have spouses who work. We have kids that we're having to homeschool right now because all the schools are shut down. So everyone's having a lot of grace with each other on <laughs> when we can set up Zoom calls. And, uh, but, but we're looking to get, you know, in a very new way, further and further out. And I, I told our whole staff, your, your job has changed dramatically. Whatever your job description was, you are now an online content marketing team. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, and yeah, we're going to push everything we can to that. And, and people have stepped up and it's been awesome. So we're working through it. Yeah, you've been surrounded by a great team so far. And I think that um, from those that we know on the leadership team there at Inland Hills, you've got a lot of people who are willing to adapt and, and shift into this new normal. And they we don't are. know if this normal is now normal or weird is now normal or normal is now weird. I, I've been having that right. conversation with people every day and, and really we don't know. Same thing with me too. On that same Wednesday morning you were talking about, I, uh, Lorianne was up visiting with grandsons up in Utah and our boys up there. And, and uh, I was just, it was not business as usual, but I was doing a consulting gig at a client. Yeah. I went in, had to keep my phone in the car because of the nature of this particular client. And when I and they were talking on the radio about, you know, possibly the NBA playing a game tomorrow with no fans. That's yeah. what I was hearing when I went in. When I came out, league was shut down, baseball was next, soccer, <laughs> everything else. It's like, everything, wow. yeah. I was worried about her getting on a plane literally, I think, the next day to, to get home. Totally. But, um, so something that you've had to demonstrate throughout your career, especially as a lead pastor, and especially now because we're in this transition, um, I've been reading a lot about leadership through my whole life, and especially now lately with this transition, I want to talk about leadership a little bit. Obviously, as a leader of this church, but a leader in, not only in your home, but just in general, let me take you to back a little bit. Your first experience of recognizing someone in your life, personal or otherwise, 
who was a great leader, what was it about that person that really resonated with you that you thought, you know, I aspire to that at some point in my life. Maybe it wasn't lead pastor aspirations, but who knows? When, when did you really think that leadership and why and, and who was really the person who led you down that path, would you say? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I would have been capable of framing it quite like what you just said, just because I was in my early 20s. Um, but I, I had worked in uh, two different churches, on two, two different church staffs, and had not seen great leadership at either of those churches. And I went to a third church where I was hired as a college pastor. This was in uh, Louisville, Texas. And the, the youth and family life pastor there, he's probably the best youth pastor to this day I've ever worked with and, and just a wonderfully talented uh, minister. His name is Mark Jones. And I saw Mark um, just thinking at a different level than other leaders I had worked with up until that point. He was really able to, to take his thinking to like a 30,000 foot level of what he was doing in family life. How was that attached to the larger mission of the overall church? How was he coming up with, you know, lead and lag measures to see if they were being successful, if they were hitting their targets? Um, how would this thing over here that seemed to be totally separate from family life actually impact family life? You know, he was just, and I wasn't able to, to understand everything that was going on there, but I just knew that I was seeing something that I hadn't really seen done well um, in churches I'd worked in up until that point. And so Mark poured into me for, you know, a good 12, 18 months there. And I just tried to soak up as much as I could. I was also at the same time going through a bit of a faith crisis. Yeah. So I was, I was struggling with both, you know, whether Christianity was real, whether anything about Jesus was, was true that had to do with the miraculous and also like what it looked like to be a leader in a church context, but even a leader outside of that. So I think that was, Mark was probably the first person I really saw demonstrate that well and, and got me interested in saying, okay, this guy is able to mobilize more adults than I've ever seen anybody mobilize because they're following him for something, you know, what is that? And, and what can I learn from that? One of the traits I've seen in some of the great leaders around me is vulnerability. And uh, I know we've, a lot of us have watched the Netflix, you know, film with Brene Brown, who talks about vulnerability, the books she's written, a couple are on my desk right here. How do you equate vulnerability? Because you are vulnerable. You have shared from the stage about your faith crisis, about the journey you've been through. Uh, maybe not all lead pastors would feel comfortable sharing that, but you obviously have no problem with that at all. So how does, not that you intentionally are vulnerable, I don't think, but how do you equate that to great leadership? What, what, what is it that makes you comfortable that you feel like I can share my journey without really any, any hesitation? I think I saw that demonstrated by my father at an early age. My, my dad's an evangelist. And so he's never uh, led an organization, you know, uh, with a lot of staff or anything. But I, I saw him lead um, other pastors when he would, you know, we'd go from church to church. And a huge part of why people found my dad compelling, I think, was because he was, he was vulnerable in his approach. It's like if you can um, help people to understand that you've been where they've been, you've seen what they've seen, and it's changed you, it's shaped you, you've learned from it, you've also made mistakes, but you're in a place now where you can help be um, a guide and not just the person who's trying to solve the problems. Like you've solved that before, maybe not you, right? But you've, God's led you through it or somebody helped lead you through it. When you're vulnerable about the journey that you've had, other people trust you to help them in their own journey. I mean, that's, that's a huge part of leadership, I think, for me, is, is I, everyone, you know this, Ed, it's, it's in, call it an evolutionary mechanism, call it, call it whatever. We're all worried about ourselves, like primarily, it's, our, sorry, it's a survival mechanism. Sure. And so if I'm going to listen to someone, I want to know pretty quickly if you have something that can help me. Like, have, have you experienced something, been through something, gained some kind of knowledge or wisdom that I can actually glean from? Because if not, I don't want to waste a ton of brain cells on giving you attention, you know, because uh, I've sure. there's a thousand things to grab my attention right now. So I just think vulnerability is is not only good and humble and all those great things, and I think Jesus demonstrated it, for instance. But I also think it's just practical for lots of people. They they're more likely to attach to to a vulnerable leader than a, than one who's not. Are there other adjectives that you would use that you've used before that you reference to describe a great leader? Whether it's describing someone who's led you or leads or just ways as you talk about leadership with people. Because I know that a big part, a lot of things that I'm hearing from people around you day in and day out right now are just your leadership style and what a great leader you are. And I don't mean to just sit here and pile on the flattery and that's not my point, but 
great leaders tend to know that they are being looked at as leaders. Uh, so what is it, how would you describe leadership, I guess, is, is the way I'm trying to word that question. Yeah, well, without trying to get into like a treatise on it, I, I do think, I think vulnerability is a big part of it. I think humility is a big part of it. Um, I also think confidence, I, I don't, but confidence and humility, sometimes people feel like those two are almost at odds with each other. I, I don't think that's true. It's, it's okay to be confident in what you're confident in or confident in the skills that you have either obtained or that you're, you know that you're naturally strong in. Um, what you don't want to become, you know, is uh, disengaged from additional learning. You don't want to become shut off from other possibilities maybe you haven't considered. And you certainly don't want to um, make your team feel like you're unwilling to, for them to be a part of the solution. So yeah, so I, so I think that confidence and humility are both really, really important. Um, I think that teachability stems out of that as well. You're going to continue to be teachable if, if, if you do those things. Um, and I, I think that you have to be someone who is able to, to delegate and to let other people lead uh, from their own strengths, even if they're going to do something worse like you, than you. You have to give people the opportunity to try and, and to fail. And so that, you know, you'd, you'd get any of that from a Leadership 101 kind of book. I know that I'm not sure. saying anything that is blowing anybody's mind right now. All right. Um, yeah, just I, I, I think that while, while none of those are mind-blowing concepts, if you've read anything by, um, you know, John Maxwell or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. any number of leaders, um, it's one thing to know it intellectually, and it's, a, it's another thing to live it out. And to live it out requires intentionality, and it requires the ability to constantly be checking yourself and making sure that you are truly living out the values that you know you should. So you mentioned John Maxwell, you led me into my next question. I know you read a lot because just about every Sunday we see different books quoted that you're reading and, you know, some are Christian oriented and some are leadership oriented, some are both. What, uh, what are some of the great authors that you like and who you read? And if a, a book by that particular author comes out, you're all over it. Are there, are there favorites? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got favorites. So, um, yeah, I, I used to read a lot of Maxwell. I've, I kind of, uh, did that, uh, earlier on in my career because that was, he was, you know, he had been a pastor at one point And so I, he gets recommended by almost everybody. Um, lately there's a guy named James Clear who wrote the book Atomic Habits, uh, that I really like him a lot. Um, I find, uh, I find it to be really helpful. Uh, the four disciplines of execution, just trying to think of books that have been helpful lately. Uh, it's like Stephen Covey would be someone. Drucker, Peter Drucker would be somebody who I found to be really helpful. Um, I'm just, uh, from a Christian perspective, like Andy Stanley is, I think is a, is a great leader. Craig Rochelle as well. He's got a really great leadership podcast. Hasn't written a ton on leadership, which is interesting for how much he thinks about it. But um, I think he's, he's really great with that. I don't know. I'm just, I'm actually pulled up my Kindle app as we're talking, like, cause I, <laughs> sure. you know, I got a ton of stuff what here. What am I reading right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, yeah. Like right now, um, I'm reading a number of things. So uh, Michael Hyatt is someone I really like a lot. He's, uh, used to be the, he was the former CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishing and Hyatt's written a lot. Actually, he has a book that came out this week called The Vision uh, Driven Leader that I, I've just started and is excellent so far, but he's great on so many topics and has pointed me to a lot of great leaders over the year. Uh, you mentioned Brene Brown earlier, and I know that someone who, who literally specializes in vulnerability may not be who we think about first when we think about leadership, but I actually think that um, she's, she's done a ton to help people um, through their leadership over the years. I don't know. How, how much longer do you want me to go on that? <laughs> no, that's good. No, that's good. I know uh, two of my, my guests on this podcast in the past have been Ken Blanchard, who wrote yeah. The One Minute Manager, and also a very popular book that Lorianne has read and I'm reading now called Lead Like Jesus. Yeah, Bl Blanchard's then, great. That's yeah. the one I've read too, for sure. Yeah, Ken's a mentor of ours and a, and a good personal friend. And, and then Gary Ridge, who runs WD40 down in San Diego, both have mentioned, and others as well, that there are certain books like everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten, for example, is a book that each of them reads every year. Mm. Is there any book that you read over and over, whether it's yearly or it's just you go back to that? I've got a couple as well that you go back to pretty regularly. Uh, Edwin Friedman's book, A Failure of Nerve, is a book that I, I don't read it every single year, but I, I read it often and I recommend it a whole lot. 
Um, there's a book that just came out a couple of years ago that I've already read through twice and one that I recommend to a lot of, uh, especially faith leaders called Canoeing the Mountains. Huh. And that's a book by uh, Todd Balsinger. Todd's actually a, a professor um, in, in this area. And I, but I bought the book before I, I knew of him at all, really, um, that I think is, is just a really excellent book about the changing landscape of leadership and what it looks like then to, to lead a group of people, especially in a faith environment, towards something that is uh, different. So those are a few off the top of my head. Yeah. Do you um, talk about leadership books or, or ask your staff to read much at all or reference them? I know some leaders who will give a book to their staff. Phil Jackson, famous coach of the Bulls and then the oh, Lakers, yeah. always give, would give his players books to read. Do you find yourself doing that or have you been in that situation much at all? Yeah, I would say at the meeting house, I, I, that was my church that I was at before I was here. Um, I did, did that with frequency, planning on doing it here too. We've trying to, been trying to figure out what plan we need to have for leadership development. I do think that if you are new, right, new, new in an area, you've got to figure out, oh, there's, there's a great book you know, called Your First 90 Days. Yep, which one of the, yeah. yeah, so one of the things that that book talks about is assessing when you first start a, a new job. Like, are, what are you in? Are you in a sustained success uh, are you in a, you know, make some tweaks? Are you in a turnaround situation? Like, what, is, what does it look like? And so I, I really spent the first several months I was here figuring that out and then figuring out, okay, who are the personnel that we have who are going to keep running with us? And then what is it that they need? So we were actually just talking about kind of what we're doing to help them in their leadership development skills for the rest of this year <laughs> as we started shuttering down. So um, now I'm having to rethink what that could look like if we continue to be uh, isolated for the next couple of months. But yeah, I think passing out books is a great practice. So what phase would you say that uh, you've, you've uh, t come into at Inland Hills in this current situation? So that's a, it's a tough question to answer um, on a public podcast, yeah. but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. I, I actually, I actually think that it maybe it, maybe it's helpful um, for lots of people. So uh, I thought when I first came here that um, probably what it was, was uh, I didn't think it was sustained success. That basically says we're killing it and we just need to right keep the yeah. pedal to the floor keep and keep the ship going. going the same direction. Yeah, I mean, with with the tragedy that the church had walked through in the year and a half, and really even um, you know the lead pastor before that had had cancer and had passed away, and so I mean, the community was just in a in a state of of grief for yeah. for about eight years. By the time I got here, it'd just been a really tough you know almost decade. So I, I thought we we were probably just like make a few tweaks when I got here and 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 keep going. But truthfully, what had happened over the course of those eight years is, as you can imagine, when, when you have an unhealthy lead pastor, physically or mentally or whatever, at the helm for, for almost a decade, there's just systems that aren't working anymore. There's innovation that, that they knew they needed to make but never got implemented. There's a lack of leadership at the top to drive things like that. And so as we're interesting because we're a church that sustained pretty good attendance, sustained pretty strong, you know, generosity and continue to try to make an impact in this area. So we looked fairly successful to anyone who could just see from the outside, but on the inside, most of our systems, our staff policies, processes, all that stuff, all of our infrastructure was just really in tatters. And it wasn't because anyone did something wrong or anyone right. was lazy or anything like that. It's just, it's just kind of a natural consequence, I think, of some of what the church was walking through relationally, emotionally, and with the sickness that we were. So I, I would say we were, in a, we were right on the edge of a public turnaround situation, but we actually, behind the scenes, were in a major turnaround yeah. situation. Yeah. So it's not exactly what I thought I would find. You know? And sure. again, that's, that's not a criticism. That's just a recognition of, of where the church was, given all that they were trying to deal with. Yeah, and it's actually a really good lesson to be learned for, for anybody listening to this today because that's the situation we're in as a society now. I mean, we are actually, I was on a call earlier today where we were talking about we're not just heading into a national recession, we're heading into a global recession. Every company out there is going to be in a massive turnaround when we come out of this. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't through any fault of anybody. It's just sometimes no. it's situational. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, circumstances. Uh, yeah. And having been on board in the previous leadership and now, yeah, you're, you're right. There are a lot of things that were going really well, but when you are dealing with situations beyond your control, sometimes it makes it very difficult to, to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and do everything procedurally the way you should. So, so that that's really good. Talk a little bit about what it was like growing up as a, as a PK, a preacher's kid. You alluded <laughs> to your dad earlier. We've all yeah. heard stories, but talk about how that's influenced you one way or another. 
I think my experience is probably really different from a lot of people's. My, my dad wasn't attached to a single church. He spent most of his career traveling, preaching, and even leading worship um, from church to church. So he would do revivals. He also did like summer camps, youth camps, um, you know, conferences, Disciple Now weekends, all kinds of stuff. So we were traveling a lot in the summertime, especially we'd be gone. Um, he would, for instance, I spent about a decade of my childhood. Every summer we would go for, I think, about 10 weeks to Jekyll Island, Georgia. And there was a camp there called Super Wow. And every week we'd have 1,000 to 1,200 students who would come in for a Monday through Friday camp. And my dad was either the lead speaker or the lead worship leader for all the evening sessions. And as I got a little older, I was even playing like guitar with him and singing with him and that kind of stuff. So, um, so here we are on this island, uh, able to talk to students, you know, about Jesus at a really fun time in their lives. And that was, I mean, those are great memories. We started doing that when I was probably 10 and we did it till I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um, so I never had any kind of bitterness toward the church. I always felt like my parents had time for me. I, I know some pastors, kids who felt like the church got the best of their father and that their family was left with the scraps. And that was never my dad. My dad, I don't remember him really ever, hardly ever missing a basketball game, a football game, a school play. He, he scheduled, because his schedule was flexible, he could choose to schedule around us, and he did. So um, my parents, both my mom and my dad, David and Betty, um, they were great examples for me. They really lived out the faith that they preached. I mean, I saw them I saw them give money away to people. I saw them give their time and prayers to people. I saw them, um, we, took a, we took a young girl in who had been in a, a rough family situation for several years when I was a kid. That left a huge mark on me. Continue to talk with her and her family, you know, uh, even, even to this day, support them. And I just saw them be really authentic. And so they really showed me, both my mom and dad, what, what Jesus looked like and how that could shape your life in a positive way. So that was, I have nothing but good things to say actually about yeah, I can that experience. Tell. Heard you talk a lot from the, from the stage about your, your parents and uh, it's very obvious the love and respect and admiration you have for them. How have the lessons that you've learned from them translated to Josh Crane, the dad? Yeah, I think that my, I think that for parents, you need to remember that um, your second highest responsibility is to parent your child, but I think your highest responsibility is to enjoy your child. Hmm. And I think kids can kind of feel whether you enjoy them or not. And I always felt like my parents enjoyed me, even when I was being a brat. I, like I, they, I, still, I still felt like they enjoyed me. And so I've just really tried as a parent to enjoy my kids. And, um, and of course, obviously, you know, we'll, we'll teach some life lessons and discipline and all, the, all those kinds of things. But I want them to know that being with them is not drudgery for me. Like I really have a good time. So it's, you know, we're stuck in the house with each other now, man. <laughs> yeah, There's nowhere else now, to right? go. But, but here's, here's how this has impacted even this moment that we're in, right? Like uh, I know that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, my kids will tell stories about this season right now, this COVID-19 season. And we get to determine the kind of stories that they're telling yep. 10 years from now. Will they say, do you remember that time that, you know, the pandemic happened and our parents were nervous and they were a wreck the whole time and our house got awkward and quiet. Like, was that what they say? Or will they say, remember that time that that happened and mom and dad would play board games every night. Yeah. And we, you know, <laughs> I got my wife to play video games with us the other night, nice. which is not something she ever does. Like we, yeah. we all played the game gauntlet. Like it was just crazy. <laughs> um, but there, so we're just trying to, we're just trying to enjoy. And I think that my parents did that for me. And that's a huge holdover to, to let them know that, you know, we, we genuinely are honored to be their parents. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's great. And I think that's a, a really good lesson. And I've, I've been commenting to anybody that'll listen in the last couple of weeks that in this era of social distancing, my experiences as a society, we're getting closer. And yeah. I don't know if that actually makes any sense, but I'm, we're seeing families on bike rides. We're seeing everybody doing things as families. I'm actually closer to most of my clients, I think, now, because it used to be that when you say to somebody, hey, how you doing? You're passing in the hall and you're really just saying, hey, I see you and you're moving yeah. on. Now, when you say, how are you doing? You really are listening for the answer because you care. <laughs> it might be your only interaction for a couple hours. You want to hear right. an answer. And so if I'm someone just, says, oh, I'm doing great, you're like, no, you're not. Tell That's me ridiculous. more. Yeah, so, really. <laughs> how are you doing so great, right? No, really, tell me. No, I've noticed yeah. that. I, I, haven't, I don't think I've had a superficial conversation with anyone grandkids included in the last three weeks because these conversations no, are great. so precious. 
Yeah. So yeah, it's really, I think it's kind of cool. I think that, um, you know, someone said in our Bible study last night, God may not have created this, but he sure is using it. Yeah. And I, I think that there's a pattern, right? If, if uh, you're reading through the teachings of Jesus, there's a pattern there that, yeah. that God doesn't wish the evil or make the evil of the world to happen, but he is constantly looking for ways to bring good out of what it is that we're experiencing. Yeah. So we talked earlier at the beginning, you have a, a son who has autism. Yeah. As I mentioned, we have two grandsons as well who live here with us. Tell me a little bit about um, just that experience for you as a parent. I mean, we're dealing with it as grandparents, so we're a little bit removed in that it's, you know, we're grandparents, but we're still in the day-to-day, especially Lorianne, who's, you know, teaching them and spending time with them all day when I'm at work or even when I'm up here in the office at home. How has that uh, impacted and, and been a blessing? I always like to ask somebody who is has some sort of a, an illness or, or whatever in their home, how has it been a blessing? So let's talk a little bit about autism and what have you learned? How do you teach them a little bit differently? And again, that question of how has it blessed your family? Jack was 18 months old when he was diagnosed. My wife, who's, you know, as we said earlier, she's a nurse, medical professional. She suspected that he may have autism. Uh, he was, he just had a few signs. He was standing on his tiptoes a lot. He was flapping his arms some, and he was not as verbal as he should have been by then. Not nothing, but almost nothing. And, uh, and kids learn to talk at different ages. So that's, you know, any one of those things by itself wasn't necessarily a red flag, but the combination of them together. So she asked our pediatrician if we should have him tested. And he basically said, it's borderline, but if I were you, I probably would just to, just to be safe. So we did. Uh, to be honest with you, Ed, I was I was in denial that anything would possibly be wrong with this precious, beautiful, you know, blonde, blonde-headed child. Um, I just thought, okay, I mean, he's he's maybe he's just a little slow uh, at at getting to his speech development. I mean, he does have me as a father; that would make sense. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, um, <laughs> glad you said it, not me. <laughs> Someone was thinking it. Might as well name it. So, uh, so we went and had him tested, and man, the. Uh, I'm sure that the, I, I know that the woman that we had do the testing was, she was considered to be the best in the area. So I'm sure she's very good at her job, but her bedside manner was just awful. She left the room, she came back and she told us, um, okay, so Jack's autistic and what you're going to want to do is call these numbers. And she just started just telling us what to do next. And I just. And after Jack's autistic, you stopped listening. I, could, I like couldn't, it, yeah, not, yeah, not intentionally, but I just, you know, right. the room seemed to, I mean, it really felt like slow motion, the room's slowing down. I can't really focus in on this. And, um, and I just didn't know exactly what that meant. And they say that if, if you've met one autistic child, you've met one autistic child because exactly. autism is such a spectrum and you just don't know what that's going to mean. And so as I got back in the car, um, I'd, I'd had to drive separately to that appointment because I was coming from work. And um, so my wife and, and Jack were heading back to our home and I was headed back to the church and so I got into the car, I just, um, I just started to weep. And I, I'm the guy who's actually worked out, you know, uh, God and the problem of evil. That was a huge holdup for me in my 20s. So I, I don't have any belief that God made my son autistic or right. that God's the author, any of that kind of stuff. So I wasn't, I wasn't mad at God. We live in a world that's full of imperfections and darkness. And, and it's not shocking then that um, my child's autistic. That, that shouldn't be shocking. But what I did was I, I, I wept all the way back to, to work because um, whatever I thought the future might look like, it, it wasn't going to look like that anymore. Right. And whereas I had in my mind certain milestones that I knew he would hit at certain ages, now that was replaced with just mystery. I, I didn't know for sure if he would ever be fully verbal. I didn't know for sure if we'd be able to play catch if he would be able to do team sports if he would I just didn't know anything man yeah and so um I that night I even came home and I began to watch I, I mean read some, this is what I do right I read I, I watch I, I, try, <laughs> yeah. I try to learn what I can about it because I just really hadn't taken up any headspace at that point yeah. and I remember watching a um I believe it was a TED talk with a gentleman who has worked with autism uh, patients his his entire life autism uh, children specifically and one of the things he said in that talk, I just, it made a huge impact on me in the very first day I found this out and I've never forgotten it since. He said, if, if autism is so ingrained into the fabric of who someone is, it, it shapes every part of their being. If you were to say to someone, I wish you weren't autistic, you might as well say to them, I wish you didn't exist yeah. because that is who they are. And it was something about that that was like, okay, my child is autistic and that is who he is. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the future looks like, but 
I love this child so much and everything I love about him is wrapped up in the fact that he is, uh, he, he is autistic. And so, um, so I'm just going to lean in and I'm going, we're going to figure it out together and I don't know what the future holds, but, but that is, of course, I'm going to do that. I'm his father. Yeah. And so, um, so since then, I think the blessing has been, we don't know what tomorrow we've, we've not ever known really what tomorrow looks like for Jack specifically, but it helps us lean in a little bit more each day. And he's, he's verbal now. I mean, he's, he's in first grade. He's, he's such a paradox of a human being because he's the most extroverted autistic person that maybe the world has ever seen. I've never seen someone with the amount of energy he has. His speech is a little hard to understand, especially if you're not around him a lot. So he's still, he's going to struggle with speech issues. We, we, hope that that gets better for him as he gets older, but there's no guarantee of that. Um, he, but he seems pretty, he's, he's sharp. He's funny. Um, we just, we just love him. He, he is a huge blessing and he helps me see the world in ways that I, I don't think I would if, if that's not who he was. So. Well, I love that quote that you shared because I think that applies to a lot of different scenarios. I think that um, I've heard people talk about that, you know, if you, yeah, beginning of the trial, it's tough and you can't see your way out of it. And then when you're in it, it's like, you know, not to say I wouldn't change it, but yeah, you get to that point where it's like, it's just yeah. beautiful. I look at our two guys here and same way, they're, they're, they love everyone. They say hi to everybody. They love having visitors over. They'll walk in here when I'm doing a, a meeting and they'll say hi to people. And it's just, and I've seen that with Jack as well with you. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's just, I, yeah, it's, they're just perfect the way they are. And it's uh I mean, do I wish the best for them? Of course, we all do for our kids and our grandkids, but you know, they just, they bring so much love and joy into our home. And yeah. uh, I know Jack does that with you as well. Totally. So he's, uh, I, I've, I've called him some, I think Jack's almost like a human hug. Like he's, just, <laughs> yeah, that's great. he's that, he's that kind of personality. He blesses everybody who meets him. It's, it's pretty yeah. awesome, man. Yeah. No, that's great. And that's, that's a big lesson for all of us because regardless of what the trial is, whether it's a child or grandchild with autism or whether it's someone today going through this COVID-19 or anything in between, it, the challenge is the challenge. How we deal with the challenge is really the measure of who we are as individuals. That's right. Because I know a lot of parents that wouldn't be able to deal the way you do. And um, so thank you. I mean, on behalf of someone who has a vested interest, the two of us, Lorianne and I, in, in uh, our grandsons, all seven of our grandsons, but our two in particular yeah. that we're talking about right now. Thank you for that inspiration and watching you and hearing you talk about, about Jack. It, it definitely inspires me. So again, thank you very much for that. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate that, man. What would you say to someone, you, you talked a lot about your struggles with your faith in your early 20s. What would you say to someone, and I, I know it's not a hypothetical because I know you deal with this in your line of work, who might be the same age going through similar struggles? We're not even the same age. They could be in their seventies going through it. Yeah. I, I would say that that's good. I think it's good to struggle and wrestle with your faith. In fact, so what happens a lot of times, especially in the United States specifically, what Western countries generally, like we're handed some version of Christianity as kids. And it's a really simplified version of Christianity because of course it is. <laughs> we're kids. That's what we can <laughs> yeah. handle. But I think what, what we often don't realize when we grow up is that the whatever version of Christianity we were handed as children is exactly that, a version of Christianity. And, and what I found in my early 20s is that the version of Christianity that I was handed as a child just wasn't strong enough to withstand the weight of my adult questions. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean that Christianity as a whole is, is you know, uh, completely nonsensical or is it possible that the version specifically that I understood of Christianity just isn't going to be helpful for me as an adult? And so what, what I did was I, I decided to look into lots of Christian thought. Also, I wanted to look into other world religions. I also wanted to give a fair shake to atheists and agnostics. I was really, if, if I were to hold everything loosely, what would that look like? It's kind of the question I asked. And I know a lot of Christians who, who need to think more deeply about their faith because they are really uncertain, but they're honestly just afraid to. And um, I think part of that is because I, I, was, I was talking to a woman earlier this week, and she's not in her 20s, she's in her 40s, but she's, she's struggling with faith. She said, like, I, I see people around me who have a lot of faith, and I want that to be me, but it's not me. And I said, well, you know, have you ever considered the possibility that you're just not wired 
for that kind of faith. Like that's not what faith is going to look like for you. Because for me, like faith never came easy once I became an adult. I mean, I was too interested in science and philosophy and everything for this hyper-fundamentalist faith that kind of the church I was raised in uh, held to. They wouldn't have called it that, but that's like looking back, that was certainly a part of it. Um, and so I think a lot of times we think that doubt is the opposite of faith and that then, you know, the credibility of our faith is to whatever degree we are certain that it's true. But what Jesus seems to teach us is that there's always more faith. I, I love, he's having a conversation with a man who asked for him to, to, to heal uh, someone in his family. And, and Jesus says, well, like anything's possible for those who believe. And the guy says, well, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. Like it's yeah, a mission. Yeah. Like I, I believe. I'm struggling with, yeah. No, I believe, kind of. I believe sometimes. There's yeah. a portion of this I think I believe. Like, mm -hmm. but there's a part that I don't. Jesus, can you help One me with to that? One ten, don't ask me that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesus heals his family member because he he didn't mean like you have to be certain about every jot and tittle It's like faith. I think is uh, one of the best analogies I've ever heard is you're up in a tall tree and there's a big thick branch sticking out of the tree. Like you're, you're leaning up against the trunk, but faith is putting one foot at a time out on the branch and testing your weight. Like, does this continue to hold me or does it not? I'm taking one step forward. Okay. That, that felt like safe. Okay. So I'm going to take another step forward. It's not certainty. You, you, faith demands to be tested. And in fact, instead of seeing doubt and faith as being opposites, I think they're excellent dance partners. Yeah. Uh, in fact, someone who struggles with doubt about their faith is, is likely someone who is, is truly wrestling with it. And I think that that's really, really positive. So, so if you're struggling, um, I think that that's probably good. It, it probably means that you're, you care is probably what it means and therefore the struggle is worth it so it's okay to be afraid of what answers you might find if you to if, if you're to explore it but i just don't think it's okay to you know ignore the answers or to or to pretend that the answers aren't there i think you just named the podcast by the way faith and doubt are excellent <laughs> dance partners i like that that's going to stick with me and Good. it's true and just because that one branch may not be safe doesn't mean the whole tree is unsafe that's right. It's another, I love to take analogies to the next level sometimes. Yeah. And you're okay. Maybe that branch is a little weak for you, or maybe I'm too heavy for that branch, but I'll find one that, that works for me. Yeah. At the end of the day, Ed, I just said, I, I determined that the question I had to ask for myself was simply, is Jesus worth following? That was it. I actually didn't have to know yet what I thought about the Bible or the miracles or anything else, but Jesus taught a lot of things. Is that worth following? Can I, that's my first step out on the branch. Like, do mm -hmm. I, trust that if I live my life in the way he asks me to, that my life would be better and I would be better at life. Well, I don't know. Let's try that. So I did for a few months. I was just, I'm just going to immerse myself in the teachings of Jesus. At some point that became such an irresistibly beautiful way to live. <laughs> I had to ask like, well, okay, if that's true, then what else about his claims also seem to be true? And that just kind of, you know, it's one foot in front of another until Actually, the faith I ended up having looked a lot, if you were to just write down, you know, it's major tenets, it looked a lot like the faith I had as a child, but there was a depth to that that was way beyond anything I could have imagined, you know, when I was a teenager. So, um, yeah, I think there's a beauty to exploring it. Yeah, and I love analogies. I think as you're talking, I'm picturing a diving board or a swimming pool that you can run to the edge of the board and just jump in and just kind of stay at a level till you fall into the water. But a diving board for it to work has to have a spring. It has to go down to propel you up. Sometimes we need to go down. Sometimes we need yeah. to get to the depths, get to that despair, or even just that, that questioning to really strengthen what we're doing. We have to weaken the muscles before they get strong. So what's your favorite thing about being a pastor? <laughs> There's an uh, open question for you, huh? It was, it was fairly open. I, I mean, my favorite, my highest value in life is, is making a difference in the world. I mean, I, I just want to make a positive difference in the world. So my favorite thing about being a pastor is the way that it allows me to, to make a difference in the world. I've, I get to see lives totally changed and transformed because people end up putting their trust in this message that Jesus taught and in this kingdom that Jesus announced. And that's my favorite thing. There's a lot of, you know, sub points to that and things that I love working on. But at the end of the day, that's it. I mean, it's, it's seeing lives change. Was it a, a snap of the fingers or a process for you when you made the decision, this is what I want to do? Yeah, it was a real gradual slow burn. I would not have, college me would have been very surprised that, that I was doing this. This is what you're going to do. 
Yeah, yeah. Because I love um, I love marketing, mm-hmm. uh, and I've I've worked in I, I've used to build websites, and I've I've worked as a, um, a a fractional chief marketing officer for different different firms before. Um, I, I enjoy you know lots of stuff in the business world, consulting, all that kind of stuff. But but I think that ultimately, at least for this season of my life, for however long this is, and I you know suspect it may be a few more decades. Uh, this. Yeah. We this also. feels like the the right. <laughs> yeah. This feels like the right the right spot for me. Uh, I have a lot of different interests and gifts, and and they seem to all kind of collude on on this space, which is cool. Sure. If you could make an ask of the people that are in your stewardship, if you will, either through this or in any forum, um, especially now in this time that we're in, what might that be? Is there? I mean, I know you know we're praying for you, and we're doing what we can to support. The, the leaders and the, and the and the staff at the church, is there something that maybe is is specific to you, but maybe most people may not think of that that you'd really like to see the people around you, whether it's in the community or at Inland Hills or or what have you, that you'd like to see that maybe not that you're not seeing, maybe it's just more of this, but is there something you'd really like to see? I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, but this is the first thing that pops to mind at least. Um, yeah, I would, I would let anyone who's within, you know, the Inland Hills sphere, I would just love to see you think deeply about what it means to be a great neighbor to literally the people living around you uh, in, in the era of COVID-19. I mean, um, it probably doesn't look like inviting people over for a house party, right? <laughs> not today. But, but does it, you know, my, my wife and I wrote a letter last week that we're distributing all to a bunch of people who live within close proximity to us, just saying like, Hey, I'm a pastor. My wife's a nurse. Um, don't know how we can help you, but if we can run an errand, if we can have a phone call, if we can, you know, you're also welcome to ignore this. Like we're, we just want you to know that we're here. So maybe you need prayer, maybe you need medical advice, maybe you need, you know, a resource that we can plug you into, but uh, we care about you and we're praying for you every day. And so, you know, let us know. It's, It's a simple thing, but we, we created a special email address for it and a special Google voice number for it. And, um, and I don't, you know, there's other ideas that w- we have and it'll sure. look different for everybody. But I think that the main thing I'd love f- to see followers of Jesus do right now is to step up and determine to be really, really helpful in the midst of this pandemic to the world around us. Because some of our highest profile pastors and people who call themselves Christians are not being really, really helpful right now. And, you know, we're seeing some of that on the news and in other places. And it's not, no one appointed them to be our spokespeople. They just, <laughs> they just happen yeah. to be seen more than others. Right. So if the rest of us can really think hard about how it is that we can be helpful, what we can give to, how we can provide assistance to others, how we can bond together as a community, that to me would be the, the best thing we can do right now. Yeah, sometimes our role is to change other people's perceptions because of what they're seeing in, in world leaders or world Christian leaders or neighbors or what have you. So Absolutely. being authentic to, to what our beliefs are. I could go on and on with lots of questions and I do want to respect your time. Um, I've always been curious. I've never really asked this question of a pastor before. Don't worry. It's not gonna be a tough one for you. I was about to say, this is exciting. Yeah. Let's see where this goes. Yeah. Where's this gonna go? <laughs> no, I'm always amazed. I, I, I'll watch you on the stage you and you being you, Josh and you other pastors as well. And sometimes I'm looking behind me on the wall to see, are they like reading the sermon back there? How do you deliver the same? I've, I've watched you at 8.30 in the morning and I've gone back and seen you at five or watched you at one time and seen it online a couple of days later. How do you do that? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've done training mm. sessions where I have to do the same training over and over and it's yeah. vastly different when I do that. Uh, that kind of goes back to my earlier question at the beginning of what's a, a day in the life like, and I'm not trying to go back to that question per se, but I'm assuming a lot of rehearsal, a lot of practice, I guess two-part question: When do you decide what you're going to preach, and how do you prepare, and, and how do you and how do you deliver it so efficiently? We 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 pick out sermon series usually six to twelve months in advance, um, but with the obvious knowledge that that plan could totally blow up if a worldwide pandemic breaks out. Yeah. So yeah, we're planning for um, those barely. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, so at, at least at that point, we know the main topic of the series, where we're going to go. And that allows me to begin reading about that, thinking about that, 
collecting illustrations that might reflect that, all that kind of stuff. I use Evernote a ton uh, to just kind of log ideas, just as simple note taking, so that I'm, I'm never starting with a blank page. I've always got material, illustrations, books that I found interesting to pull from. I just use it as a, a way to quickly search you know, my brain so I'm not having to keep it all up here and, and exhaust sure. myself. Um, so that's six months out. And then usually a few weeks, three to four weeks before the next series starts, I've got a sermon brief uh, created. I know that my creative arts team will laugh if they hear this because they're like, ah, three, four weeks. Yeah, feels like a stretch. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not always that early, which is fair. We're talking um, best case scenario here. Best right? case scenario. We, yeah. we, we were getting into a better routine than, yeah. you know, we're in right this second where we're, you know, making it up on the fly. Reacting. But <laughs> yeah, but, um, but that, that even the creation of that brief, which usually consists of the, the, scripture the main scripture passage for that week the main point that i'm asking people to take away and then a little bit of an overview of how we're getting there even that helps me to go ahead and collect that stuff and get that whittled down and then typically on tuesday the tuesday before the sunday i'm teaching it i'm taking all these pieces i've collected things or i'm not starting from zero but i'm trying to build it and i know if i can put it into a deck where i have you know 20 ish slides kind of making my bottom line main points and that kind of stuff or, or illustrating a picture, then I could probably stand up and give it at that point. So I try to get that, a, at least a first draft of that done on Tuesdays. As far as the, the delivery of it, man, um, I think everybody's different on this. So I can only speak for myself. Sure. I don't rehearse, I don't practice. When you see me do it on a Sunday, it's the first time I've actually stood up and delivered awesome. that thing. I love that. Now, there's a, there's a downside and an upside to that. So the downside is if you come to the 8.30 service, you are definitely getting the worst version. You're getting the dress rehearsal. <laughs> Well, that's, I don't know. We go to 8.30 most of the time and we love it. Well, I, a lot of times at the 8.30, I'll go to the, uh, you know, I, there's a green room in the back. I go to the back and I'm, I immediately take notes on what I thought didn't work or what did work. Uh, I may rework some slides, that kind of thing. Uh, and I'll do that right before. So I always go out and chat with people in the lobby, but then I'll, uh -huh. I'll kind of like reshuffle some things before the 10 o'clock. Um, and so 10 is usually, 10 usually feels better. And usually whatever happens at 10 is usually the same the rest of the day. So um, I used to manuscript, like literally write out what I was going to say. The problem with that is I would fall in love with the words that I wrote. And if I didn't say it exactly like what I wrote, I would mm -hmm. feel like I failed. Right. And it's really hard to literally memorize word for word a 35 minute talk. And so I stopped manuscripting. I started thinking of sermons in terms of movements. You know, I, this is... I have one main point that I want to drive toward one and everything in the message needs to support that main point. So I may have several other points that I'm like underlining to get there, but this is where I'm headed. And then I have, okay. Then in my mind, what I'm thinking is, okay, I have this intro where I'm um, setting up the existential crisis that if we don't solve this, it's going to, you know, it's going to bother what's the us conflict, the rest of our just lives. Like any story, yeah, right? what, exactly. The what's the conflict? Cause I got I got a peak interest right away. And then I've got, you know, this section of scripture I'm going to talk about. I've got that illustration in there. I've got that, that point I need to make if I'm going to get to the end. I've got that list I'm hitting, that kind of thing. And that's really it. I mean, I've, you know, there's been a ton of work that's gone into setting that up, but as long as I know the movements, it's pretty easy for me to remember it and then just kind of stand and deliver. Now, that's years of practice talking. Sure. You have to trust yourself to, to fly without the safety net uh, a few times before that feels comfortable. But if you can do that without a manuscript, then you're, you're more likely to, to get to a place where it works for you. Awesome. I see shadows behind you, so I'm going to ask my last question. Okay. Hey, just a second. I've got Yeah, it. of course. Jack, give me just, give me like uh, <laughs> five more minutes, buddy. Okay. I will, I'll totally help you if you can give me five minutes. Go upstairs and I'll, I'll meet you up there, okay? Sound good? <laughs> oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> we got to see it in action right there. Everything you just it's talked a, about in the last totally. five minutes right there in 30 seconds. <laughs> I love it. You're a man of your word. Uh, I knew that about you from the minute I met you. And, <laughs> no, I mean, before I ask my last question, again, let me just on behalf of, of Lorianne and myself and family members and friends who have heard you preach and met you, just thank you. You've, you've definitely brought, um, I'm an emotional guy and I, I tend to cry sometimes and I'm gonna try not to now, but uh, just literally from the bottom of my heart, I wanna just express my gratitude for you, not only for taking time today, that goes without saying, and, and again, thank you. Just for the impact that you've brought and the sensitivity that you've brought to a, a grieving community. You came into an area at a time when, when we needed some some guidance and we had some tremendous you know we had eric hurd and others who had come in and yeah. just been tremendous during that transition and um i just I, I can express what i've heard from a lot of people just thank you 
Oh, thanks, Ed. I, it means a lot to me. You need to know, and, and your audience needs to know that you guys specifically, uh, and other people in our church as well, have have made that transition for us just a lot easier than it could have been. So you've been nothing but encouraging, affirming, um, and just kind. And you know, when you're in a new place, it's just helpful to have some kind people yeah. to just to just come alongside of you. So uh, that has gone a long ways, both for me and for my family. So please know that we, you know, feeling is mutual and that we really, really are, are grateful for you guys. Well, and we're converting it over to the Lakers too. So that's a good thing. So, you know, <laughs> hopefully we'll have a Lakers season for you to finish watching. I, I didn't even feel like I had a choice moving here, man. So that's like, true. It's, yeah, now, and I've actually always really liked the Lakers a lot. Um, I'm, but you know, growing up in Dallas, I'm, I'm going to be a Mavericks fan first, but I'm happy to slot the Lakers in as my two. Well, and your owner, Mark Cuban, sure is proving to be a, I mean, he, I already knew, but he's really proving to be a, a great guy through all of this too. The things he's doing for his, his team and his community yeah, it would be right it'd be hard to overstate how much Mark Cuban has done for the city of Dallas. And yeah, um, I, yeah I mean, yeah. And I, I was, you know, I grew up a Mavericks fan in the 90s back before Cuban bought the team. And it was just it was a laughing stock. The only reason you would go to see a Dallas Mavericks game is to see whoever they were playing against. Yeah. So I got to see them play against the Seattle Supersonics and uh, the Orlando Magic and the Chicago Bulls. So it was it was really fun. Yeah, uh, People used to I buy Clipper season tickets for the same reason. Just they would literally, <laughs> you don't know this because you didn't live here. They would literally advertise in the Los Angeles Times Clipper season tickets by showing pictures of all the players of other teams that were coming. Oh, to wow. That's, That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Well, that, the Mavericks should have taken a page out of that book. They had to sell more tickets. <laughs> yeah. Well, as, as you know, the, the title of the podcast is From the Heart, Oh yeah, on the last name, but really the whole reason that we do this is to have an opportunity like we've just had to, to really get into your heart and hear what drives you and what motivates you and the why you do what you do. So I will ask one last question and we'll wrap with this. And that is simply, Josh, right now, what's in your heart? Right now, what's probably most in my heart is uh, just this moment that we're in and the realization that um, lots of people are going to be experiencing this moment in very different ways. So, for me and for my family, you know, we experience it one way. We're juggling kids and homework and and jobs and my wife's in the medical profession. So it feels a certain way for us. For some other people, they find themselves with just more free time on their hands and they're watching Netflix and reading books and they're bored, right? Some people are just bored and feeling like lonely and isolated. Other people are in a domestic abuse situation where um, home was one of the least safe places and now yeah. they're stuck there, right? And it's just um, this last week, the newspaper in this area reported that domestic abuse calls have gone up 17% since the shelter in place um, was, was passed down. So it's just a recognition for all of us that um, maybe more than in any other period I can remember in my lifetime, like we're all in this together, yeah. but also that we're not all experiencing it in the same way. And so if you find yourself with some extra bandwidth and some extra ability to be a blessing to others, um, I think that that is a wonderful opportunity for you to pour into the people who are around you and the people who are in your sphere, your circle of influence. The other thing I would say is that if, if you're someone who's listening to this and this has just been a difficult season, you've been laid off or you've had a huge cut to your income or you've been a victim of domestic violence, uh, please know that um, I, and I know a number of other people, we think about you and we pray for you every single day. Like I just know that this has been incredibly hard on some people and will get harder. And I would encourage you not to face that alone and not to keep that to yourself, uh, to let people know. Our church, for one, is, is trying to say yes to as many needs as we possibly can right now. We've got a form that's going live on our website and just, I think within the next 48 hours, just allowing people to tell us what, what their needs are for us to either connect them to the right organization in town that can help them or for us to personally try to handle that need ourselves. So that's inlandhills.com. If, if that's you and you need something like, let us know. There are other churches, right? We're working with some great churches in this area that are doing similar things. And so whether you're a person of faith or not, you're surrounded by faith communities who care about you deeply and want to be a part of, of assisting you if, if you need assistance. So I think all that's in my heart right now, man. I'm, I'm just really thinking about the different experiences we're having as we're walking into this together. Thank you so much. And for those that want to reach, not necessarily your private cell phone or email, but what's the best way to, <laughs> to, find, to follow you? I know that you, you post inspiring videos and messages on your social media. Tell our audience how they can follow you and find you. 
Yeah, on Instagram, it's Josh Crane. That's J-O-S-H-C-R-A-I-N. On Facebook, it's J Crane. Got to that one early. So it's just J-J-C-R-A-I-N. Twitter, it's Josh Crane. Uh, That is mostly dormant, but I occasionally post something there. Um, You can go to uh, inlandhills.com and find me there. And I have a website that's currently not active because ain't nobody had time for that the last yeah, couple no, months. Time right now, yeah. But uh, but probably no good will be web active. designer though. If you need one, and I'm looking at it. On the <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah, it'll happen at some point. I've got I've got a plan in the pipeline, but it probably nice. won't be this month. So yeah. yeah, those are all ways you can reach out. I'd, I'd love to connect with you. Uh, if you're a faith leader or a pastor and you've struggled to find someone to assist, especially with how to provide care for your people and for your community right now, um, I'm certainly not a guru, but I've 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 got great networks and I've talked with lots of people and I at least, at least could probably point you in some right directions and, and feel free to reach out and let me know. I'd, I'd love to, to be helpful. Josh, thank you. I know you're a busy man and you've got a lot of things on your plate. A couple of them are right behind you ready for you now. So we're going to let you go. <laughs> but um, again, thank you so much for your time and for your message. And uh, we can't wait to see you again online. Uh, on what tonight and then Sunday and anywhere else we get a chance to. So appreciate your time. Thanks, Ed. I appreciate it. Really uh, honored that you had me on and and love what you guys are doing uh, with the interviews that you're posting. So uh, looking forward to, to hearing more.